Welcome to the Devoted City Church podcast. Our mission is to help people find, trust, and follow Jesus. To learn more about our church, visit devotedcity.com. In today's episode, you'll hear a message from our lead pastor, Donnie Williams, or a member of our teaching team. Hey, good morning, everybody. I want to give a big shout out. If you're watching here online, I want to thank you for being a part this morning. If you're a part of our carry location, thank you so much. Um, we are continuing on in this teaching series, How Faith Works. Anybody else feel like, man, this one is like hitting, hitting home? For me, this is one I've been so glad to be a part of this series because it has been just so practical and helpful. I, I want to be a little transparent with you. It's been a while since I've been up here and uh, I'm having flashbacks from the first time I got to teach a sermon like a good 18, 19 years ago, something like that. And, and I remember it was a bumbling mess. I mean, just an absolute disaster. My wife, then fiance, showed up with her friends from college. They drove all the way from Kentucky, not to hear a sermon, but uh, they were going on vacation. I happened to live in Florida and everybody goes there for vacation. Uh, But I remember uh, everything I did or everything I tried to do, because nothing really got accomplished, uh, was, was really just rinse and repeat. My dad was a pastor, and so I saw him do things, and I just thought, well, if he did it, I'm gonna repeat it, and I'm gonna give it a shot. And so one of the things my dad would do, I had no reason why, I had no idea why he did it, Um, but he would print, you'll see, I still do it, uh, print his message in landscape in two columns, and then he would go and cut them in half. Since that day, I don't cut them in half anymore. You'll quick find out why. Um, And then his reason was he would like ninja sneak those things like nobody knew he had notes into his Bible and just, you know, he just look like an awesome guy. Um, I didn't know that, so I just did what he did. I printed them in landscape. I put two columns. I cut them in half. What I didn't realize is there's a very important step that I forgot is you have to actually go through and number the pages. Somewhere between printing and teaching, I must have gotten those things mixed up, and so I started very confidently um, and I started teaching and page one was great. Page two was great, but that page two led to page seven and page seven led to page four. And pretty soon I was wrapping that whole thing up about eight minutes into the whole deal. And I didn't know what to do. So here's what I did. 19 years old, 20 years old, something like that. I just said, um, excuse me, can you wait for a moment? I turned around like a dealer trying to do a magic trick, you know, like I start reshuffling the deck. I'm messing with this thing. I finally, I mean, they had to stare at my backside for like five minutes. I finally get this thing sorted out. I kid you not with all the tact in the world. I just started over right from the beginning. It went on forever. As it turns out, no one got baptized that morning. Um, and it's been nothing but an uphill climb since. So, uh, I, it has been a great great deal to be a part of LifePoint. We we moved here after starting a church in Kansas and came. I started as an intern here and worked my way up. There's nothing like being a 30-something-year-old intern um, and and got to work as a part of this church on staff for six years. The last year or so, Ashley and I have been doing every kind of real estate you can think of. Apparently, we don't know how to pay attention or do the same thing for very long all at one time. So we're trying it all, baby. But here's what I want to tell you. Today feels like the first day all over again. I feel a little nervous. I'm, I've checked my numbers to make sure the pages are in order at least 14 times. So far, so good. So today, we're going to keep going. We're actually going to take a pause in the middle of this series called How Faith Works. And we're going to answer the question, what is faith? 
You might come to that like, what is it actually, like, what is this stuff? And we're going to look briefly at the book of Hebrews and, and find out that Hebrews and James are really written to the same kind of people. A Jewish audience trying to wrestle with this deep, rich heritage of following God in their past and how to apply this to this brand new thing that God was doing through Jesus. Both groups of people receiving this letter wrestled with a lot of the same things. And today we're going to do our very best to answer the question, what is faith? But first, I want to give you, I grew up first half of my life, Kentucky, second half in Florida. So this is my redneck recap. Redneck recap, guys. Here we go. Week one, we said this, faith refuses to waste a crisis. The way that the writer, or the way that the writer of James put that is trials produce perseverance. Perseverance produces maturity. You want to be mature? Guess what? There's some hard knocks along the way. Anybody learned that lesson? What hit home for me as I was prepping for this is this little bitty warning, this disclaimer that James sneaks in there. He says this, let it finish its work. Why would he write that? Because the easiest thing that you can do in the middle of a trial that's creating perseverance in your heart and that perseverance that will eventually make you mature is to shortchange the process, to find a way to cut a corner, the way to run out early and miss out on what God is choosing to do in the middle of the crisis that you face. And you'll miss out on the perseverance and maturity that you needed all along in the first place. Week two, this is what we said. Faith chooses to listen to God's voice in the noise of life. When tensions are at their highest... When pressure is at its greatest, when it matters the most, are the very same moments that we need to go, Father, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? What don't you want me to say? Should I say anything at all? We learn to be quiet and listen to his voice in the times when we're most tempted to just blurt ahead. Week three, we said this, faith demands that I see others, see in others what God sees or saw in me. It's where Dom kind of talked about treating people with equality, not based on how we look or skin color, not based on how much money we make or where we grew up or, you know, anything else. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to get to this again later, but it says from now on, we look at no one from a worldly point of view. We have to begin to look into the eyes of people, whether we like them or don't. There's plenty of people we won't and see who they could be if God truly got a hold of their lives. That's a whole different lens to go through life with. Week four, genuine faith produces good works. This is what Rob talked about. But good works cannot produce genuine faith. We'll talk about that as well. But when we follow after Jesus, it should change how we live. But we can't do a bunch of good stuff and think that God will just be okay with us. No, Jesus was here for a reason. We'll get to that. Week five, faith gives control of my mouth to the voice of God. Anybody think that one might be hard? Dom talked about how, how our mouths are kind of a rudder for our lives. And they, it's the hardest thing to master. It's the thing that reveals how much control God has over us. And last week, Matt, whew, I go home and pray about this one. It was hard. Faith exchanges my opinions for God's wisdom. Hmm. Hear me. There is a source of truth in this world. It's not something that negotiates or bargains with us. It's not your truth or my truth. There is a God who created everything. He gets the final say, whether you like it or not. And when things matter big time, it's important for us to defer to him. I learned that lesson last week the hard way. See, in 20 years in ministry, I have spoken about faith a lot. I started when I was 18 years old. 
And every time I've ever taught about faith, there's this like nagging fear in the back of my mind that somehow we won't articulate it well, we won't express it well, that people will get out the door and kind of define what faith is all on their own. Faith has been misconstrued and manipulated in the hands of many people to to mean many different things that isn't what Scripture actually teaches or, or tells us. About eight years ago, I had this aha moment that's really become an anchor in my life of how faith works for me. And and it's not because I was smart. I actually blurted out something that I think the Holy Spirit just produced uh, through me. Because when I got done, I was like, hey, I don't know where that came from, but that sounds right. And the further I've followed Jesus, the the more closely I've walked with him, the more I've found this to be the basis of, of real faith in my life. See, a lot of times when we come to this idea of faith, what we wrestle with is this question of what if God doesn't do what I want him to do? And I had faith. What if I don't get what I'm after? What if things don't turn out like I wanted them to? What do I do with God when what I hope for isn't the reality? And that can sound superficial like a job or lottery tickets or a promotion or the house or the stuff, but it's not always that way. It can be, I want a clear bill of health. I don't want bad news from the doctor. I want my kids to turn out a certain way. I need help in this area. I'm having a crisis. What do we do with faith in the middle of it? How does faith work when God's not forced to do what we want him to do? And, and here's, here's where I think the grounding comes in. See, we do not place our faith in an outcome from God. We place our faith in the character of God. That means this, when you really need that promotion, if God tells you no, you have to look back at his character You have to look back at the way he treats people. You have to look back at his faultless track record and go, you know what? God may have told me no, but it's got to be for my best. God may not be provider through this, but he is provider and he will provide. When we look back at our past and we go, oh my gosh, I don't know how anybody could forgive me of X, Y, and Z. We look at the character of God and we go, well, his character is unchanged. I can't put my faith in me to do better. I can put my faith in him to forgive. We don't put our faith in an outcome from God. We don't get to manipulate him to get what we want. We put our faith in the character, the unchanging nature of God, which means something very important. For you to truly experience faith, for you to really, really live a life of faith, requires proximity. You have to watch him interact. You have to see what he does. You have to see how he comes through for you again and again. You have to live through the crap to get to the promise. You have to live through the hard stuff to see that he's still there at the other side. You cannot have real faith at a distance. It's impossible. So here's our big idea today. Faith is anticipating and applying the character of God to every aspect of life. What is faith? Faith is not an idea. It's not a concept. It's not a feeling. Faith is a very practical thing that is lived out in every decision that you make and that is realized in the big and small moments of life. It is anticipating and applying the character of God to every aspect of life. So if you're here today, if you're watching online, if you're hanging out at Cary and you are trying to figure out whether this Jesus has something to offer you, I'm here to tell you that he does and hang on because he may very well speak to you in a way that you never dreamed possible. Open your eyes to the idea that you can place your faith in Jesus and never find yourself disappointed or let down by him. But if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe you look back at the last few months or the moment that you're in right now and you go, life is not what it should be. I'm stuck. I'm wrapped up in sin. I don't know how to get out of this mess. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd be past this, but I don't know how to move forward anymore. Hey man, you're here for the right day. 
because there is a way forward, but it comes with some very clear warnings from Scripture. See, at the, at, at the very ground level, faith as described in the Bible, faith in Jesus comes down to one thing. It's ultimately recognizing that Jesus gives for us, does something for us that we could not possibly ever do for ourselves. And the very thing that he does for us, which we'll talk about, is something we need more desperately than anything else in all the world. And this is the core message of the book of James and the book of Hebrews, which we're going to look at briefly today. And so I want to give you again a quick synopsis of what Hebrews is all about. Again, Jewish culture trying to wrestle with how to follow Jesus in this new thing, even though they have an experience with God in the old thing. In chapters 1 through 7, what the writer of Hebrews does is he establishes the supremacy and, and the, the, the immense worth of Jesus. And he does so in a way that, honestly, to a Jewish person would be eye-opening and possibly offensive. Here, here's what he first starts with, that Jesus is bigger, better, and badder than angels. Sounds like not a big deal to us. Jewish people held angels in very, very, very high regard. Then he goes on and he says, not only is he better than angels, Jesus is of greater supremacy than Abraham. Abraham was like the OG, the original guy. He was the first one. Everything started through Abraham. He was the father of the Jewish people. Nobody was better than Abraham. And yet the writer here says, Jesus was that wasn't offensive enough. He then goes on to say that Jesus was greater than Moses who brought the law that defined the people as who they were. The Exodus, the defining story of God's salvation in the Jewish people. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews goes, yeah, that's cool. Jesus is better. Friends, here's what you got to understand from that is that Jesus, if you're here today and you believe that Jesus is a good teacher whose wisdom you can borrow from or apply sometimes and not other times, you need to understand you're, you're missing it. Jesus is the most significant thing, not just in this world or in our day and age. Jesus is the most supreme thing in all of the universe. He is greater than anything that has ever been or anything that will ever be. His opinion is greater than yours, greater than mine, greater than television, greater than the talking heads, greater than the book that you buy. Jesus is the highest form of value, worth, prominence, and authority. He is supreme over everything. So in Hebrews 8 through 9, Jesus, or, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews goes not just to talk about these things in the Jewish past. He starts getting real personal with the present. Here's what he says. Jesus is more important than the high priest. Now that's a big deal. That's, that's dangerous. High priest had, had not just uh, significance. The high priest in those days had authority. That he's the one who had Jesus executed. So to say that puts your life at risk. He goes, no, 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 there's a, there's a newer, better high priest, and he's not giving up his office to anyone. That guy's name is Jesus, and he came to broker a new deal between God and people. Then he says, Jesus was better, and oh man, you cannot conceive of how big of a deal this was. Jesus was greater than the temple. See, Jewish people had already seen the temple destroyed once and rebuilt. And for them, all activity of religious life took place at the temple. If the temple for them went away, there was no forgiveness of sins. There were no sacrifices. There was no way out. Jesus being greater than the temple, people would have gone, hmm, I have to think this one over. I'll pray on that. And in chapter 9, here's what happens. He begins to describe, some of these things are really foreign to us, very familiar to Jewish people, the, the articles of worship and the trappings and all the stuff that were in the temple. And he really describes two rooms. There, there's the, the holy place, which is where the sacrifices took place, where, where animals were substituted for the sins of people. And that place was used every day by priests. 
But then there was this other place behind it known as the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And and there was only one dude. He was the high priest who the writer already said Jesus was better than. He could only go there once a year. And he had to do all of these things, all these sacrifices to make sure that he and God were square. Because if you went in and offended God, the rumor was you would drop dead. It was so significant that they would tie a rope around that dude's ankle so that if he went in and made God mad, they didn't have to smell him for the next year until you go back again and they could pull him out. I have no clue whether they ever used the rope. I just know that they tied it on there. And he's describing all of that, and he begins to start taking this rich heritage and applying it today. Here, here's what he says, verses 6 through 7. When everything had been arranged like this, all the stuff in there, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. Again, this is a sacrifice thing, which he offered for himself and the sins that people had committed in ignorance. See, what he's referencing is that Moses had brokered this deal with God where God was like, hey, cool, this is a two-way street. We're going to do a bilateral agreement. I'll be your God, and as a result, you get to be my people, but here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to be faithful forever to you, no matter what, something God has lived up to. But your deal is you got to be perfect in following my rules. Well, how many rules? Well, there's 613. That was the agreement. I'll be your God. You be my people. You be perfect. I'll be faithful. It took about eight seconds, and that whole thing started to unravel. The problem was the penalty for breaking the agreement was death. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. It was not a metaphor for the church. It was a look back to the Jewish history where literally that's what was supposed to happen. Now hear me, God wasn't being unjust. God wasn't being crazy. God immediately entered into this sacrificial system, which looks like crazy pants, barbaric stuff to us. But if it was your life or a goat, I promise you'd be like, man, that thing is, thank you, Lord, for the sacrificial system. This was an act of mercy and grace. Wherein the the, the problem was at least temporarily held off by this, that if you sinned, you could die. It's your choice. Or you could get fluffy, bring fluffy on into the temple, give fluffy to the priest. The priest would sacrifice fluffy for you, and you'd be like, oh no, but I'm alive. And you would skip off not feeling so bad about fluffy because you were breathing. The other thing that he references is this thing called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day that maybe you forgot about some sin, one snuck in on you, you forgot to tell God about it. And, you know, there are these things that maybe you didn't have time to go sacrifice fluffy, or you ran out of fluffies because you keep sinning, whatever it is. The Day of Atonement was the day where the high priest would enter that room and he would sacrifice not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of all of Israel. And on that day, the entire nation of Israel got a clean slate. And this is how God managed the sin of his people. The reality is this, you mess up, something has to die. In Hebrews 9.9, the writer, you know, you're feeling some tension here and he's trying to resolve the tension. Here's what he says. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. All of this stuff just pointed to how desperately we needed a new way. And he goes on 11 through 13, but when Christ came as the high priest, new one, got it, he's better, of the things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Okay, he, he didn't just do this from something that people built. He went to heaven and brokered a new deal with God directly. That is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood or goats or calves, uh, but he entered the most holy place in heaven itself once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
Then he talks about what the priests used to have to do. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are, here's the phrase, outwardly clean. What the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is there were two problems with the sacrificial system. If it still existed, it would be a problem for you and me today. The first one is this. There was the problem of perpetual sin. What he says is, look, all this is is just a big old cover-up. didn't change the problem. We kept sinning. We kept messing up. There was something deep inside of us that was never getting fixed. And so we just have to keep going through the routine and this whole sacrificial system and this whole mess. But the problem was never solved. It just bought us time. The second problem was this. There was an exchange rate issue. Anybody traveled abroad? There are certain countries you go to and you take a dollar and you you leave it there and you're like, I'm rich. I got 4,000 of whatever these things are. Go to Europe. You got like 0.7 of your dollar. When you go there, the exchange rates are different. Here's the thing. God values us infinitely higher than he does animals. And our sin has far greater impact than it does for just a normal life of an animal. And so we kept having to do these sacrifices. There kept having to be solutions because the exchange rate between people and ours, our animals and our sin were not equal. Hebrews 9.14 says this, how much more then? This is the good news. This is where we find just how much we need Jesus. How much more then will the blood of Christ through who, through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse us and cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death. So he addresses the exchange rate issue. He goes, look, animals, eh. People, eh. Jesus, oh, we've already established that. Remember the supremacy thing? Greater than anything, anyone, anything that has ever been. Highest authority, highest worth, highest value, highest supremacy. There is nothing in all the world that could ever be worth more than Jesus. And so Jesus, loving and compassionate in his character as he is, went and submitted his life for your life in an exchange that could never be calculated. It's the unfair matchup. It could never be quantified just how much more he's worth than you. So much, in fact, that the six billion or so people that live on this planet, Jesus' life is valuable enough to cover over all of them all at once. That's how supreme he is. Not just them, but the countless generations that have come before and the countless generations that will go after. All of those into one mix and all of the mess that comes with it. And Jesus' life is still exponentially more valuable. The exchange rate, easy. If God would sacrifice Jesus, if Jesus would lay his life down for you, there is no issue of exchange rate. Your sin is paid past, present, future, forever. But he also solved the perpetual sin problem. See, the old system just covered over. I messed up, cover it. I messed up, cover it. I messed up, cover it. See, Jesus, when we place our faith in him, God promises that he sends the Holy Spirit to live into our life, to actually take up residence inside of us, to change us. 1 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new, say new, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. It means you become a brand new person. Everything before, that dude's dead, gone. Matter of fact, scripture says you've been crucified with Christ, cannot come back, will not come back. You're brand new. 
That means where you were once an enemy of God, you were a child of God, where you were rejected by God, you were fully accepted, where you felt empty, you can now feel full, where you were full of the spirit of sin, he now fills you with the Holy Spirit. When you felt like an orphan cut off from God, he makes you an adopted son welcomed home, an adopted daughter welcomed home forever. See, the old system, the the way that oftentimes we try to approach God is I'll just work harder, 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 and it'll kind of even out the score eventually, maybe. It's like me driving into church last week. I drove into church last week. My buddy Brian pulled his truck in behind me. I got out. He got out. He's like, oh, it's you. like, still me. Looks just like me. He goes, well, I didn't think it was you because on the back of your truck, you have this sticker of this like cutesy pootsy little bear. And that didn't seem like you. It looked like your truck, but it didn't seem like you. And I was like, well, let me tell you about the sticker. See, I had this scratch on the back of my window. And I bought all these goops and potions and things at the auto parts store where you like buff it out. And anybody feel like this when they try to fix their sin? It made it so much worse. You can't even see through that patch in my window. I buffed and I polished and I scratched and I sandpapered and I did all the things and it looked worse than when I started. So I did what every good redneck from Kentucky did. I bought a sticker and I put it right over top of it. Problem solved. No. See, I could put sticker after sticker after sticker after sticker. There is a deep gouge and wound in the back of my window. The same is true of our sin. The old system just kind of smeared something over top and yet we went right back to it. Jesus did something different. He changed us. When we place our faith in Jesus, here's what that means. If you're here trying to figure out Jesus, it's looking at the cross, acknowledging that Jesus is the most significant, supreme thing that has ever, ever, ever lived. And he died for me. It's looking at the cross and placing our faith in the fact that when Jesus did that, it counted for you. It counted for me. You go, God, I don't know why your character is that way. You have to be almost insane to love me as much as you love me. And yet I know you did that and I know you're worth it. So I'm putting my faith in you saying it's enough. That is what faith is. And if you're here today and trying to make things right with God, that's all you got to do. Look at Jesus, believe that he did what he did for you and that it counts for you. You begin a brand new relationship. You are a brand new person. You get a brand new life. The Holy Spirit will take up residence in your life and you're going to make brand new choices. Perfectly? Heck no but you're going to make them. Faith is anticipating and applying the character of Jesus, that he loves us, that he's merciful, that he's compassionate, that he's good. The cross evidences all of these things and applies it to our lives, every aspect of our life. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you feel stuck, maybe there's a sin that nobody else knows about or some other people now know about and you wish they didn't know about, but you can't get rid of it. You just feel like you can't get past it. You can't overcome it. I want to talk to you for a minute. There are three verses in scripture that absolutely scare the snot out of me. Only three, but these three get me. First one's in 1 Kings where Elijah has this great victory. He defeats 800 bad guys, which is always good in any movie. And then he wakes up the next morning. The queen goes, I'm going to kill you. And he, he reacts totally different. He runs. He's terrified. He runs and he runs and he runs and he runs and runs. He gets to this mountain where he thinks he can talk with God. He goes up on the mountain and God actually talks to him. And he says a phrase to him that has stuck in my heart so many times because I feel like so many times I, I, I've been there and God said this to me. He says this, what are you doing here, Elijah? Mark my words, not every place you arrive in life is the desire or the will of God. Sometimes we wind up in rotten spots. Why? Because we chose to wind up there. We did things that led us there. Here's the goodness of God, though. God didn't leave him on the mountain going, tisk, tisk, tisk. He sent him back, and he provided for him along the way. If you're in the wrong place, turn around. Go back. Do what you did before. 
Second verse that scares me is Jesus tells this parable about the end of time where God is just and eventually goes, no more sin, I can't do it anymore, we're done. And he shuts the whole thing down and he kind of separates people out. And he's like, you guys made it because you put your trust in me and you guys didn't because you rejected me. And the rejection group over here, there seems to be this group of people that's like super confused. And they walk over and they actually try and take Jesus aside, which may be evidence in itself. And they're like, bro, there's been a mistake. You messed up, Jesus. He's like, oh, really? It says that he looks at him and they say, God, didn't we cast out demons in your name? In your name, didn't we heal people? Didn't we prophesy and teach people in your name? And what does Jesus say to him? You didn't do enough. That's not what he says. He says, I never knew you. Understand this, that God has always been after your heart. Your good deeds can follow, but if he doesn't have your heart, you got nothing. He wants your heart like any good father wants the heart of their child. And when we have, when God has our hearts and we do good works in response, it serves as a testimony to what God has done inwardly. But when God doesn't have our hearts and we stand on our good works, here's the problem. It stands as evidence against us that we would rather do good things when we feel like it and not when we don't feel like it than give God control of our whole heart and our whole lives. One is a blessing and a worship to God. One is something that stands and testifies against us. But Hebrews 10, man, I'm about out of time, so let me read it quick. It says this, scariest verse in Scripture to me. It proves that God's no chump and we can't manipulate him. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hang with me here, please. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died. Remember, the payment for sin is death. Without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished? Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as unholy the, thing, or the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? Who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, as he looks at the Old Testament, it is mine to avenge I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, ultimately, I just try sometimes to get what I want out of God, to manipulate, to justify, to go, well, it's not so bad. God, I'm just doing this thing, but I'm not like X, Y, and Z. And and that's not what God desires for us. If faith is anticipating and applying the character of Jesus to every aspect of our life, we don't get to choose when and we do that. And when we don't, we don't get the right to go, yeah, I'll apply it to this three quarters, but this quarter is mine, God. You don't get permission. The writer of Hebrews speaks to a group of people who seem to be missing on that end. See, there's this thing called sanctification. It's the process of being made more and more like Jesus, where our character looks perpetually more like him. Now, I grew up in a system where you couldn't mess up or you were always going to hell. Stub your toe, say a bad word. I did it last week. And if you get hit by a bus before you get to get on your knees and pray to Jesus, enjoy a hot place, baby. That's how it was. I don't think that's how God works. Pastor Joby Martin describes sanctification in the best analogy that I have ever heard. He said, it's like a yo-yo in the hands of a man on an escalator. Messing up, doing better, messing up, doing better, messing up, doing better, but I'm on the up and up. You will blow it. Doesn't mean you need to go and just be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell. You will win. It doesn't mean everything's all right. The problem comes when we get off the escalator. 
when we say, you know what, God, I've cozied up to sin enough. I like my sin enough. I want my sin enough that that as much as you've done for me. See, I think God's grace goes almost 99.9% of the way to cover over everything. I think he leaves just enough room for us that if we want to say to him, I'm going my own way, I'm taking my ball and going home, that he is a gentleman enough to allow us to do so. I think it's the extreme case, but I think that's exactly what the writer is approaching here. See, God wants our whole life. And if you're feeling stuck, it may be time to ask a sobering question. God, am I on the escalator? And if not, here's what you got to know. You got to look back and apply that character of God to your life. What's the character of God? He is loving, kind, merciful, but he is just. He won't be made a fool of, and you will not manipulate him. That same loving, kind, merciful God will take you in that moment and he will keep you moving forward. He will love you. He will care for you. He will forgive you. And you can turn back to him today and find your freedom. If you don't believe me, just here's the next verse, all right? Just, I know that one's not fun. It says this, remember those earlier days when you had received the light. Anybody remember when God first whispered in their ear? When you knew that the God of the universe looked down from heaven and set his sights on you, not to punish you because he loved you. When you knew you were of immense value, that he loved you enough to give his son for you, that first moment you were like, God loves me. What's he say? Remember that. It's important. What happened? You endure great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you know that you yourself had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Hear me. God will not let you down. No matter what you have to cut out, what you have to give up, what you have to stop, how much you have to be there with him, no matter what it takes, stick with God. He will never let you down. You need to persevere, like James said, so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he's promised. And he says this Old Testament thing, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous will live by faith. And he sets it up again. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but... We do not belong. You do not belong. We are not required to belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. If you're stuck, your God is good enough to get you unstuck. He's been in the unstuck business for long before you were born. He will do so long after you're dead. He is good and loving and kind and faithful, and he will not fail you you got to stay on the escalator. Don't quit. Some of us have cozied up to sin close enough that we don't even see it as a problem anymore. It doesn't feel like a problem in our hearts. And God is calling us to wake up and go his way. He is merciful and kind, but he's not going to let you destroy yourself without at least warning you. And you can return to your father today and find him full of the same compassion that led Jesus to the cross. In the first place, apply the character of God to every area of your life, to that area of your life, to this day in your life. And watch as he responds with kindness and love. Let's pray. Got to pray for my friends today. Pray for our church that you would call us further and further to look more and more like you. Help us to know the areas where we withheld faith, where we haven't applied faith. Help us put your character as the lens for how we make every decision. God, for those of us who want to find you and are looking for you, I pray today that you would confirm in our hearts that you're real, that what you did on the cross counts for us, and that we would be able, through faith, to begin a brand new journey with you today. 
Amen. Thanks for listening to the Devoted City Church Podcast. If you liked today's episode, rate us and subscribe so others can be encouraged too. We invite you to join us on a weekend at one of our locations or online at devotedcity.com.